but I just want to put things out there so we consider them. And I want people to feel seen and known and powerful, even when they're tiny. Me too, Katie House. You may contribute a verse. I'm Josh Munkin, children's lit author, father, science communicator, podcaster, and host of You May Contribute a Verse, a set of conversations with creators I value. So fun, so nice, so encouraging, like a cup of coffee and the sounds of nature on a brisk morning, but for your ears. Katie House, picture book, and maybe more, author, joins me for a chat today. Katie is the author of the lately published Rissy No Kisses, a picture book about a lovebird who doesn't love kisses and the lessons her family learns about boundaries, consent, and bodily autonomy. Katie and I do a lot of discussing in this conversation about how to reach readers from adjusting language in early reader books to making time for virtual visits to weaving theme into your books. I really hope you enjoy our chat. Here's Katie Howes' verse. So I saw a little bit ago that you're working on an early reader. Oh, I just posted. Yeah, I'm trying. Um, I tend to not write as concretely as early readers are like they tend to be very straightforward and I do not have a tendency to be a straightforward person in my writing I like to wander and wiggle and explore things with metaphors and similes but I also like to challenge myself every time I start something new like to try something a little different that I haven't done before and so I've had an idea that's been sitting for a long time and this seems like it would be the right audience for it. So I have to learn to change my style enough to suit that audience. And who knows if it'll go anywhere, but it's just nice to, I don't know, give yourself a little bit of a challenge and try something new and grow the skills because there's so much in children's writing. Like it's not just one thing. There's so many ways of doing it and I don't like to be stagnant. So (laughs) challenge it is. Do you, as you think about doing early readers, do you find that you have to back off some of the exploratory flowery language and metaphors and things that you can explore with picture books? Yes, absolutely. And I'm very lucky that I have critique partners who not only are excellent at writing that way, but also um, who have like dealt with kids in the classroom, been working with early readers, been reading recovery people. And so they understand why you make those choices for an early reader. And they're able to help me think about the audience because usually when I start a project, I'm thinking about what I want to write, at least in the first draft. And then I start narrowing down who the audience is going to be and changing things so it suits them better, not just me. Because, you know, you can write for yourself, but then it's for you. But if you're writing for kids, you need to know who they are and what they need from the book. And that's not just like the message. It's also how it's delivered. So with the early readers um, and like the new early chapter books and things like that, it's kids who are starting to be comfortable reading on their own. They're already challenged by the skill of the reading on their own without someone to ask questions or prompt them through things. If you add extra challenges, like too much figurative language or too many leaps or guesswork or things like that, then it's it's more than 
most of them are going to feel comfortable doing right away. It doesn't give them that feeling of quick success that makes them want to keep reading and grab the next book and, I don't know, fall in love with it. So I think you have to feed that part for them, you know, make it easy at first so that they they want to just keep doing it and grabbing more and getting another book. You don't see early readers as a genre that's really part of pitch parties or part of manuscript wish lists and things because I it, it is more scientific, I guess, in how in the language that you're using and how careful you have to be about how you know simple and straightforward and bite-sized you you make each of the pages and the word count and all that is that yeah i, I think so i, that I mean through, i'm but. certainly not an expert on this i think it's just something i'm starting to explore but i do recognize that as an industry like publishing has a place for early readers where they've set standards within their houses for how many words, what kind of words, what sentence structure, you know, don't use a contraction because don't might be more confusing for a kid than do not is. And so they might not be ready for that. So it's just, there's simple rules um, and it it varies from house to house and um, imprint to imprint about that. But there's no reason that they can't be also amazing and fascinating and different while sticking to those rules. Um, there's some incredible ones out there these days that are everything from paranormal to fantasy to, you know, exploring different cultures to just feeling very affirming of kids um, for being who they are. So you can put a whole lot of different story into something that has that many restrictions, but you kind of need to know what they are. And I think a lot of them do start either in-house or with an um, editor who has an idea of what they're looking for or an author they're already comfortable with. So I don't know that, you know, playing with it will take me anywhere, but it will teach me to write in a different way. And that's good for me. Would you ever take an assignment from like, if you, if you had a good relationship with one of your publishers, Carol Rota or any of the others, would you take that? Or would you always want to write for yourself? If it was interesting, I would absolutely. (laughs) So, I mean, I love to do my own thing. But there's nothing in children's publishing so far that's all my very own thing. Like, that's just the way it is. We're a team. And if the idea starts with a different part of a team and then, like, lights up your mind and gets you excited about it, then, of course, you want to jump into that idea, even if it wasn't yours. Like, I'm not precious about that. So if somebody wanted me to write something or had an idea they wanted me to collaborate on with them, I would absolutely consider that. I think it would be really fun. Um, And some days, honestly, I would love some direction because I have, I don't know, I have difficulty with direction sometimes. I sometimes have far too many ideas and don't know which ones to chase and which ways to chase them. And sometimes it would just be nice if someone would give me a straight path and tell me to follow it for a while. (laughs) Can you write this? Here are the parameters. I'm going to assign this out to you kind of a thing. Yeah, Yeah. I could could work with that. Yeah. I mean, like, then you feel productive quickly and it's nice to balance feeling productive with feeling creative like there's there's some middle ground somewhere in there like sometimes you just want to do everything your own way in your own time in your own method but sometimes it's nice to just feel like you got something done so (laughs) and that you know that you got approval for it that that people liked the way you did it or were happy with the way you did it and that can take a long time in publishing and other creative fields too, sure, yeah. um, to, to get that feedback that, yes, you did well with this. <laughs> That's the experience I've had in these conversations too is um, I'm going to lob this over the fence and 
I don't, they accepted it, but are they happy with it? Right. <laughs> I guess that comes out in the, in how much promo they put behind it and how much they back you. Um, but they'll never tell you necessarily good job until you get your, you know, earned out letter and your royalty <laughs> checks and things. <laughs> Well, and some of it's with the relationships. I mean, I certainly have worked with editors who are wonderful at giving me feedback and saying to me, this is great. I like this. You've done well. Thanks for turning this over so quickly. You know, you revise quickly. Like that sort of thing. I feel really good. I feel like that's a pat on the back. And, or, you know, just when they say, I'd like to see more from you or, even when it's a rejection, if they say, you know, we, we don't have a place for this at our house right now, but I'd love to see more from Katie in the future. Or, you know, if Katie does more nonfiction, let me know. And things like that, like just little bitty things, that's great feedback. And that makes you want to keep going. Yeah. Um, but it's not quite the same as, I don't know, like my husband's job has all these like rating scales they do for everybody on a regular basis where everybody gets, you know, you got an eight out of 10 on this and you improved this many points on this and you, and it's, I mean, it's their data guys. They, they like their data, but sometimes I kind of miss having that kind of data feedback. Like I don't get a grade or a number or a percentage on how I'm doing. And maybe people who have been in creative fields longer are more comfortable with that. I kind of miss having a performance review that tells me I'm doing a good job and here's how much better I'm doing and here's the ways I'm doing it. And I don't know, I just, I kind of need a grade. <laughs> yeah, right. Could you assign me a point rating, editor and agent? Can you tell Maybe me- Maybe I'll start like sending seven? out a little yeah. survey. How has your experience with Katie been? <laughs> if there's like a pre-publication Goodreads, maybe. Yeah, yeah there you go. Really. Oh, it's yeah, a little silly, but I think it just comes from having been like that overachieving student all my life kind of thing where I really, I liked the good scores and I worked for the good scores. They felt good. Um, so I'm learning to judge things in different ways, um, but it's a learning process. Yeah. And feeling, feeling like you can unlock that understanding as you kind of gamify it out helps. So let's, okay, so I'll back off now that we're 10 minutes <laughs> into the conversation and say, can you, can you just self-identify and we've done this a little bit, but self-identify who you are and who you are as a, as a creative person. So I'm Katie Howes. I think of myself as a picture book author. Um, although I'm looking at expanding that into other areas really at any time. And when I started writing with the goal of being coming published, it was really with the idea of writing a middle grade book. And more ideas that I wrote, the more I expanded on them, the more I saw that they fit well into the picture book format more. And even though I am not a very strong visual creator, I felt like everything that I was writing deserved and needed that visual backup to it. That's changing with time, but I love where that went. I love seeing my stories shared with someone else who has a vision for them and bring something new and exciting to them. So even if I move into chapter books, middle grade, things like that, I want partnership. I want the visual. And some of that's just because I love it. I love to see it. I love to, to collaborate with someone else on that, but also because I see kids just really, I don't know, like grow when they see those things and put them together. They think about things differently. They imagine things bigger and they sort of 
I don't know, they, they deepen into the worlds that they're exploring when they have both the words and the pictures. I don't think we outgrow that. And we seem to have thought in the past that, you know, as you write for older readers, you should shy away from the illustrations, from the pictures, from the visuals. And now I think we're coming to a place where we're realizing that's not at all true, that even adults love to have those things together. We all love to have those together. So I don't think I answered your question at all. I wandered <laughs> off on a totally different tangent. <laughs> I guess what I think of myself as is someone whose creative side is really evolving constantly. And that surprises the heck out of me because I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't know society, the world, publishing, whatever would let me keep changing who I am and what I write and what I create. I kind of felt like I needed to have a niche. And I don't think that's true of me or of most creative people. We can stretch a lot further than we thought we could. Um, and maybe that's just me being someone who was like raised in very like science and very sort of strict things where, you know, you were an expert in something. So you stuck to that one thing. Maybe it's only surprising to people like me that there's so much more room in um, creative careers. But I really love it. It's exciting, but it's also daunting, but it's also amazing. I don't know. It's it's good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think maybe if you get to a place in your career, like a, a Pilkey or a Kinney or something where you've got like a wimpy kid series that defines your career, then you might get pigeonholed a little bit. But I, I think about especially the picture, picture book creators that I've connected with on Twitter or, or in these conversations. And it's, it's pretty universally, you know, you, you look at their catalog and you kind of marvel at the breadth of what they create over their years. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there were people when I first started out who I admired, who I thought of as this is a person who writes funny books, or this is a person who writes poetic books. But I'm seeing more and more people cross between them. And I'm seeing books that are, you know, they're fiction, but they're informational fiction. So it even starts crossing the lines between fiction and nonfiction. Um, and just seeing that we can personally cross lines, but also that like the genres can start combining, that the classifications can slip and slide between one and another. I think that's wonderful and it's fun and it gives you a lot of realm to explore. Do you think of your books as doing that? Well, I think that I'm a little bit all over the place. Um, <laughs> so in terms of my books, I mean, I have some that are more lyrical and some that are downright poetic, and some that are very straightforward prose writing. I think that all of them have, all of them are fiction, but all of them have content that is nonfiction, that is informative, embedded in them in a way, even if it's about personal growth or personal recognition. Um, and I think most, many, almost every good book I know does have that. Um, and you can kind of be more heavy handed with it or light with it. It can be more essential to the story. It can be just sort of a, a small takeaway. Um, I've started to really enjoy thinking about back matter. And I love reading back matter in books. I love having a book, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, where in the back there's more that I didn't know so that you can explore further. 
and that I want to see more of that in my own books, but I also love to see that in other people's books. And certainly some of mine have it now. Um, and then I also do, I sort of do my own back matter by making up activities that go with the books and putting them on my website. So there's more that people can explore. Um, if the kids or this classroom or whoever wants to do more with what they got from that book, I don't know. I don't like to put a book down. So <laughs> if you can keep it going and then I just hope that other people feel the same way that if they like a book, they don't want to stop. They want to keep going from it or use it as a springboard for something. So. And, and I, I kind of see that as the success of picture books in particular um, as creating relationship outside the pages with the book itself and not to, you know, schmooze or whatever, you know, I don't know, whatever the term is. But I, I will say that since I've been doing prep for these conversations and reading Rissy No Kissies, I've read it with my four-year-old daughter. And it's become a part of our conversations when she's not feeling like, you know, giving a hug or a smooch or whatever. It's not exploration of back matter, but it is its own sort of activity and presence uh, as people stop reading the book and put it down and, and it sticks with you. It is, I guess, tying it with the, with the essential question of are there genre blending elements? That's the informative part of reading your books, I guess, is that there's either encouragement or the presence of something that might not have been there before, realization of something that might not mm -hmm. have been there, been there before. Well, I love that you're reading that one together, and I'm so glad that it's helpful to have those discussions. Because, yeah, I think that's one of the best things about any picture book is that once you've read it once, read it twice, read it three times, it sort of becomes part of the vocabulary. It may actually introduce vocabulary that the kids didn't have before, but it also has sort of that, it, it puts a place where the adult and the kid who read it together or the family that read it together have something that they have in common that they can talk about with it as a reference. So when they recognize it in their own lives, they can reference that and it, it helps with understanding. And I love seeing that. And that could be any picture book in the world um, and older books as well, where once you have sort of that common reference, it makes it easier to talk about things that might be tough to talk about to begin with or to put words to or to to, I don't know, define the feelings or the emotions that are in there. Yeah, like a shared language. A shared language. Perfect. Mm -hmm. You made it sound so simple. See, I'm good <laughs> at writing words, but talking them, not my best thing. <laughs> you can't edit when you're talking so well. I can't go back and cross everything out. Which is After, after we're done, I'll make us sound perfect. <laughs> <laughs> just cross out be... like a good half of what I say because it yeah, just right. keeps going. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, I mean... I'm, I'm thinking through all of your books and it's not necessarily that your books will introduce new subject matter. Um, it'll make more familiar, like you said, make more familiar concepts that, that they will already be wrestling with or be present with or be thinking through to give them a shared language. You know, the simple phrase, be, be a maker as you define activities that you're engaging in with your kids or, or as the kids do it themselves, it's, it's a way to sort of put, put a frame of reference around it. Yes. I think that's a good way to put it. And I love, I love seeing that in action. So with Be a Maker, I really got to go out to schools and connect to groups of kids and talk about this. And often I would be, you know, in the front of an auditorium or a gym or a library with tons of kids. And I would say, at the very beginning, how many of you think of yourself as a maker? Now, in some schools, it was tons of hands up in the air. Um, 
And in some schools, it was just a few people because sometimes they had a very limited introduction to the concept of being a maker. And what they thought of often was, you know, people who were into robotics or people who could actually build things, be engineers. And when we started exploring all the things you can make and how that does turn you into a maker, let you identify as a maker, by the time we were done, everyone has their hands in the air. And we answer the question that's at the end of the book that says, you know, um, in a day of making choices, are you proud of what you made? Asking kids what it feels like to be proud is fascinating. They have so many great answers for what it feels like in their body and in their mind when they're proud. And then asking them what they've done or made that makes them proud. Like I could have those conversations all day because the kids are so honest about it and amazing about it. And sometimes it's little tiny things that made them proud. And I want to say like, grownups, listen to this. Do you, do you hear this? These kids are proud of small things. You can be proud of small things too. Like embrace that about yourself. Because I think as we grow, we start thinking it has to be big and it has to be recognized and it has to be substantial for us to feel proud of it and for us to identify as somebody who actually made a difference by doing it. And kids, you just give them a little prompt and suddenly they're identifying those small things and they are feeling good about it. They're fantastic. I miss them. I can't wait to get back in classrooms. Yeah. Do you anticipate being able to soon? I hope so. Um, I'm not sure how the fall will go. I think there's going to be a lot of transitioning going on. And I would rather the schools take that time to get a feel for what works and what doesn't before they start introducing, you know, big groups and auditoriums crowded together, strangers in their building, things like that. They need to take their time and space. I'm hoping by spring it's established and safe and, you know, perhaps smaller groups would be better than big groups, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. I think we're heading in the right direction. Um, I don't know about countrywide, but here in Pennsylvania, things are going pretty well. So fingers crossed, knock on wood, all that stuff. That's right. Have you done much in the way of virtual visits? I have. Um, not like huge numbers of them, but virtual visits have made it really easy to drop in on just like one classroom or two classrooms at a time, as opposed to a whole school deciding that they're going to organize a day around things because I don't have the drive time and all the travel and things like that. So it's been really nice to be able to pop in on a classroom or two. Um, and I have done a couple of full day things where it was like one classroom and then the next and then the next or one grade and the next. There are definite pros and cons about it. I mean, there's, there's the downside to not being there in person, but the kids still are really good at interacting through the screen and at letting you know what they're thinking and volunteering their thoughts and listening following along with stories and I can show them things that I wouldn't necessarily be able to bring with me um, to an in-person visit. So it's been fun. Um, I would continue to do them probably in the future, even when in-person visits are possible, just so I can get to places I'm not going to fly to. Um, <laughs> it'll be, it'll be good. Yeah. Now you can visit Oklahoma or Wyoming or whatever, like some place that you would never go. Places right. I'd never go. I had one to Costa Rica this year. So, I mean, I'd love to go back to Costa Rica. It's been a while since I visited, but it's not going to happen for a school visit. So being able to pop into a classroom like that virtually, that's amazing. Yeah. What an opportunity for you to experience that. 
as well. And I'm I'm going to create a through line for your books here, maybe where <laughs> maybe where one doesn't necessarily exist. But I, I think of it as either like encouraging fiction or info fiction. I mean, like we've like we've been talking about. But do you see there being more opportunity for you to do visits and to reach out with the subject matter like you know, either in Be a Maker or Rissy No Kissies, where you're speaking specifically to things that are important for kids to understand, like consent. Absolutely. So I feel like with all my books, and I didn't see it until, you know, after I had looked at them, there's only four out right now. There's two more coming next year. But the main, the center at all of them that draws them together is agency, in my mind, children having agency the individual being able to do and be in charge and be independent. And so I always try when I talk with my classrooms or libraries or whatever about books to help kids recognize that about themselves, that they are powerful with any given book. There's specific ways we talk about that. So when I do Rissy no kissies with classrooms um, or with small groups at the library, we talk a lot about how people show affection in different ways. And I think that right now with COVID going on and restrictions, it's actually become important in different ways than I intended when I first wrote it. But some people are going to be comfortable giving you a hug when they see you again in school in the fall. And some are not going to be comfortable with that. Some, And that's different from the fact that we all show affection in different ways to begin with. It's this added layer of, We've been quarantined or isolated or distanced for a while, and it takes adjusting to come back to that. So we definitely talk about that very openly and honestly with the kids, because kids are good at being honest about this stuff, better than grownups are. Um, (laughs) And we also talk about specifically asking someone before you touch them and listening to their response. And kids are really smart about this. They might not be good at putting into practice right away because they're a little more impulsive, Um, but they understand if my friend's wearing a t-shirt with sequins on the front of it, and I really want to like do that flip sequin thing where I flip the sequins up and down, I should ask my friend first if I can do that. And if they say no, I shouldn't do it. They get that. They may not always follow through because those sequins are really tempting, um, but they get that that's respectful even if they don't have the right words for it right away. Same with the kisses or the hugs or the tickles or the, you know, knuckles to the top of the head kind of thing. They know you should ask first and respect what it is. What gets interesting is when we talk about it with the adults and we say, you know, there's a kid in your classroom who you want them to hold your hand when you cross the street or walk down the hallway. You should ask that kid before you take their hand. And grownups say, oh yeah, I should ask. But I don't. I frequently just do it. Or the kids got something on their face and the teacher wipes it or the parent wipes it without asking. You should really ask before you touch a person and you should listen to what they say and respect their response. They might not want you touching their face. They might prefer you just pass them the Kleenex and let them do it themselves, even if it takes three attempts to actually get the spot. Um, And so I think part of taking Rissy out there letting families read it together, letting classrooms read it, and then talking about it is about teaching the kids from very young that they have agency, that their body is their own, and they get to decide what's done with it. 
But it's also a little bit of retraining the grownups in their lives to say, you know what, their body is their own. And they get to say what's done with it. And if you offer them options, alternatives, you'll find a way together that works for both of you. Um, I'm not saying it's easy. It's really hard. <laughs> As a parent, I know it's hard. As a teacher, I know it's even harder because you've got a classroom full of kids. You need to sit down on the rug or whatever, um, line up at the doorway. It's tricky. But if we start setting those expectations super young, and making them just the standard, the common sense standard, we're going to have a whole society that functions differently in the way we respect each other's bodies. And that's going to make a huge difference in the world. That means a lot to me. Like, that's really important to me. <laughs> and and I, I think I, I just heard the essence of the answer, but I, I'm, I'm curious how you consider success for your books. And, and, and what, I, what I think I heard was shifting behavior or seeing evidence of your message resonating with your audience? I think, I don't know how you measure success for books. I mean, of course, people measure things in sales and advances and blah, blah, blah. I have no problem with sales and advances. I think they're <laughs> lovely. I would like more of all of them. But yeah, when it comes down to it, it's if it resonates with someone, if it's something that they somehow internalize, or they say to me, I wish I had had this when I was a child, or I relate to this character, or this changed something in my life. It doesn't have to change their behavior. I'm not looking to like rehab a bunch of people with my books or anything. Like I'm not I'm not in charge of how people should behave, but I just want to put things out there so we consider them. And I want people to feel seen and known and powerful, even when they're tiny, because tiny people can be powerful and they should be, and they should know that about themselves. I, I guess that's it. <laughs> so the thesis the, that I, or the through line, I guess that I'm, I'm creating for you here is that you're setting all of that up with your books uh, from the get-go with Grandmother Thorn, where you uh, you start off your publishing journey by telling everyone, you know, break out of your routine or be comfortable with being a little bit more flexible. And then you publish a whole bunch more books where you, you say, here are some ways you could be more flexible and grow. <laughs> it sounds so nice to make it yeah, right. sound like I was coordinated <laughs> and that I have reasons all the way through, but sometimes it's just what strikes me. I... I love Grandmother Thorn, and it's never going to be a massive, big selling book. You know, I came from a small publisher at a time when I didn't understand publishing as well as I do now and how to sort of support the book where it was. But at the same time, it's really one of the more important things I ever did because it really was stepping outside of my comfort zone. That was me putting a story that was very personal, the idea that we have to let go of control sometimes and that some of the sweetest surprises in the world happen when we stop trying to have everything our own way and we let nature, friendship, all of those things influence our life and work their course on us. That really was something I needed to recognize for myself and to affirm at that time and putting something out there to be published, but to first be rejected a whole bunch of times was really scary. It took that out of my control. Um, 
but once it was out there, I mean, that was, that was magical. It really changed my life to see that I could put that out there in the world, be that honest with the world, be that creative, that people would appreciate it, but also that children needed to hear that too. And I knew that. I knew that kids were being pushed to be perfect, to be in control, to get the right answer or do things the right way. And that even young kids need that message that it's okay to let go of control. Um, so yeah, that really kind of started me on that journey where I said, I'm going to keep writing, even though it's scary. I'm going to keep sharing stories, even though it's scary. And I really do want them all to help kids recognize how powerful they are and how they don't have to be perfect <laughs> because none of us is and none of us can be, but so often school and sports and even sometimes art class says there's one way to do this. There isn't one way to do it. <laughs> and I want them to know that. Grandmother Thorne is especially resonant after the last year and some change that we've had where, I mean, I, I think your kids were in virtual as well. My right? kids were virtual this yeah. whole past year. Yeah. Since March of 2020. And yours are a little, a little older than mine. I think mm -hmm. I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old and uh, control and routine has been the only thing that's kept us sane. And that's something that I've wrestled with in the sense of, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want their lives to be so well-defined necessarily. I want them to have the freedom, but sometimes it's just that needle that you thread to maintain sanity. I guess. So it's good to be reminded to just yeah. be, be a little bit freer, be a little bit more easygoing. You've definitely, with the younger kids, I'm amazed by the parents who managed to make it through virtual schooling with the young kids and build that structure and routine for them, because that really is important for them. I've been very lucky that my kids are a little older. Um, they're 11, 13, and 15, and a little more able to follow the routine without me enforcing it as much. And yet I've been most thankful for some of the teachers who did give them like varying control and less routine. The teachers who said, you don't have to turn this in right away, or you can finish this when you want to, or you have options on this assignment. You could write it, you could draw it, you could make a movie about it because the more options they had, it was still control but it wasn't one perfect way everything had to be. There, there was flexibility. And I think that's what everybody needed. They needed to know that things were routine and structured and safe, but also that they had some flexibility because they weren't getting flexibility elsewhere. You know, they weren't leaving the house. They weren't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I really respect and appreciate the teachers who were able to find ways to put that into the curriculum in this past year. It's been amazing. So what are you looking forward to? I know you've got another couple of books coming out. Are there more in the works after that in various stages of There are more in the works that are secret things. There are secret things I can't say anything about right now because publishing is the world of secret stuff. Well, I'm excited um, for your secrets and we'll, we can leave, we can leave that part of that. <laughs> um, there was something that I wrote in this past year that just kind of spilled out of me so quickly that I had no idea where it came from or how it did that. And I 100% doubted that it was any good because it came quickly. 
And so I sent it to my agent and she said, shut up. This is great. So <laughs> she's like, do that more. So I love her. She, she reassures me when I'm doubting myself or my process or whatever it is. And so that's got secret destinations, that one right there. And I'm so surprised by it. Um, but more imminently next year, 2022, I'll have two picture books out. And one of them was actually originally scheduled to be out in 2020. And it's been bumped a couple times. So I can't wait to finally have it. But I do think that next year will be a perfect time to have it. Like having a book come out during the pandemic is tricky and scary. And people have been buying books, which is wonderful. But there's something about knowing that the school doors will be open and that I can go into them and that I can connect with people at book festivals and things that makes me even more excited. So next fall, it will be um, Woven of the World, a couple years behind its original schedule, but that's not that unusual in the publishing world. Yep. And it is, it's, it's a metaphor how we are each as a human, a tapestry woven of all the people who came before us of the cultures and traditions of the people before us and that we are somehow more beautiful and stronger and warmer because of that but at the same time it also explores the tradition of weaving all around the world throughout time because textile arts are like one of the first and most pervasive art forms all over the world so we hit different areas of the world and the artist who's doing the art for it, Dinara Mirtapolova, whose name I'm sorry, I struggle with. Um, she is an Uzbek folk artist who now lives in Ohio and she does beautiful art and she has spent so much time and energy researching the weaving from all these different traditions so that she can bring her own style to it, but also reflect and respect all those different cultures and their textile traditions so it's incredible i can't wait to see the art i cannot wait to hold this book it's going to be so great that sounds wonderful and to have found someone to do the visuals that are so important to the process who's maybe have has a bit more personal connection to the subject matter is really great she it's does and we actually it. added a verse to it because it's in little couplets um that reflects her traditions and her background and sort of brings to mind that her grandmother and mother taught her some of these textile arts in the Uzbek traditions. So it really was a huge collaboration between, well, not just she and I, but also the editor and the art directors. And we've had a lot of people on board helping make it right. And it's, it's amazing um, how few words can, <laughs> you know, and 40 pages can take so much time and energy and so many thoughts and then become something so beautiful. And think yeah. about how you were going to start. You were going to start with middle grade, which has so many more words and is so much more <laughs> laborious. A lot more words, a lot less pictures, <laughs> but there we go. It's good that I cut words out. I'm, I have a lot of words. It's just better when I take out a bunch of them. Right. Um, and then also next year I have a poem grows inside you coming. It's with the innovation press and it's being illustrated by Heather Brockman Lee. And I believe it was going to be her debut book, but then I think she signed on another book that might come out sooner. I'm not exactly sure, but she's got a couple books coming soon. It's that a she's illustrating. She has a beautiful style just very botanical and wild and 
cozy at the same time. And so this one is really, it's a book about how a poem or a story, anything you love, can sit inside you as an idea, like a seed for a very long time and kind of lay dormant until the right moment hits that sort of waters it and it starts to grow and it puts down roots inside you. And it can be scary to let it out into the light. But when you do, it's such an amazing thing. And that some people might like it and some might not when they see it. And that's really hard. But it's also really wonderful and cathartic and life-changing when you let it out into the world. And it can also act as that seed for someone else. That's, I don't know, I, I think it's the most biographical of all my books, even though it doesn't sound like it, because it's always been scary for me to put my things, my work, my everything out there in the world and let light shine on it. Yeah. But I also know relatable. it'll die yeah. if I keep it inside. It'll shrivel up. So I have to... I have to be brave and I'm not great at it, but I'm trying. <laughs> and I just want to share that with kids um, because they often feel like they have an idea, but they don't know what to do with it. And we talk about that when we do maker type things and STEM type things as well. Like if you have an idea and you don't know what to do with it, keep that idea, write it down, have a notebook because the time will come when you have the resources or the team or the rhythm for the poem, whatever it is that was lacking, that you can bring that idea into life. But if you don't remember it, if you don't hold on to it, then that won't happen. So we save it up. So <laughs> I just want kids to know that and know that they they don't have to do it right away, that it's okay to hold on to it mm -hmm. and wait for it. And it's okay to be scared to let it out in the world. It's really okay to be scared to let it out in the world, but it is a good thing. Because we're going to keep being scared as long as we have things out in the world. So you may as well embrace it. You might as well get used to <laughs> right. it. I don't know about embrace it, but you got to get used yeah, to right. it. <laughs> Harness it in, uh, is how I think about it. Well, both of those sound beautiful. I'm so I excited wait. for them. Yeah. It's going to be a and, good year. And everything else that I've read from Grandmother Thorne to Rissy No Kissies has been just such a pleasure. I'm so glad to hear that. And you have been a, a delight to talk to today. I know we've waited for a while to, to have the conversation, but Katie House, I appreciate it. I am so glad to get to hang out and chat with you. It's been fun. I'm glad we finally found a time when neither of our lives was too hectic <laughs> to give us a little chat time. Episode 26 of You May Contribute Verse has come to a satisfyingly thematic conclusion. Read Rissing No Kissies, Katie's book that came out this year, and have those conversations about consent and agency, and read the rest of her books. Find more on Katie and her work at katiehouse.com. That's K-A-T-E-Y-H-O-W-E-S.com or on Twitter at Katie Writes. As for me, You May Contribute a Verse is a homespun production produced, edited, recorded, conceptualized, and marketed by me, Josh Munkin, from the darkness and comfort of my basement. The show has a website. Hit me up at verse.show and find the show and me on Twitter and Facebook at, as at Verse Show. That's V-E-R-S-E-S-H-O-W. The artwork for You May Contribute a Verse is an amazing picture commissioned for the podcast from a very talented artist, Charlie Munkin, age seven. Love you, Charlie. The show's music is provided graciously by Robbie Zarr via tracks from his album, A Tragic But Happy Horse. Engage with his music and musings at partist.com. That's P-A-R-T-I-S-T.com. 
If you would be so kind, however you're listening to this, let me know what you think with a comment or a rate. It means a lot. And finally, remember the answer, that you are here, that life exists, and identity, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse.